morning. It's good to see you guys here this morning. Um, if you guys don't mind, if you're grabbing your Bibles, that would be great. We're going to be in Second uh, Peter chapter 1. Mostly we'll jump around a little bit. Um, if you uh, don't have a Bible, you can grab your phone or whatever, download version. It's a free app, and you can uh, use that. Normally we use the NIV translation. This morning we're going to be using a little bit different translation called the English Standard Version. Uh, it's also a really good translation, and, and I'll explain why later. So if you have like a version app that you use on your phone or something, you can just switch translations if you want, but we'll put it up on the screen for you uh, either way. But, um, but I just want to make you aware of that. So uh, I, have you ever guys seen those like videos or memes that say uh, why women live longer than men? You guys seen those? Anybody? Yeah, more, okay, you guys, see, some of you already started laughing, like, you know, you first search just looked at me like I was crazy, like, like, what? I've never seen one of those, and this, this kind of reminds me of, of that a little bit, um, you know, when I was, when we got married in 1993, um, I know that you guys went, boy, you guys are young, right? Yeah, we got married in 1993, but we were 12 and 13, and, um, <laughs> It was, it was Kentucky. Leave me alone. No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you're from Kentucky, I'm just kidding. Uh, but anyways, you know, we, we were pretty young. We were actually 19 and 20, so now we know our ages. But uh, we, were, uh, we were 19 and 20, and, and we, we got married, and we were from Minnesota. And so we uh, got married in a tiny little town in Minnesota, in Minnesota called, my, did you hear my accent almost come out there? It's called Kirkoven, a town of 800. That's where my wife grew up. And uh, so we, we got married in that town. And outside of the church, we had her, what was the year, 88? Buick Skylark, 1988 Buick Skylark. And behind the 1988 Buick Skylark, we had a U-Haul trailer, which contained everything we owned at the time. And, so, and it was packed. And so this was, so during the wedding, the Skylark and the trailer are sitting out there. We get married, we go to the reception, we eat the cake. And, and quite honestly, like, let's get out of here and uh, so we jumped in the Buick Skylark, and we drove to Denver, Colorado. Uh, we had $2,000 in the bank, a car, and a U-Haul that we had to give back. So, um, <laughs> so that, was, that was what we had. We didn't have a, a, a job or a place to live or anything. But, you know, we made it all right. God was with us. Um, but we, uh, we got jobs. And during the, the next couple years, the first couple years of our marriage, and some years after that, I did it as well. But I did construction. And that was kind of how I, how I made a living. I pounded nails and all that kind of stuff. And I'm always amazed, by the way, and, and there's many in our congregation that do, have done construction for a long time. And I'm always blown away by uh, guys who have done that for a long period of time because it's really hard on your body in, in so many ways. And, and so, but I did, I did construction. And, and one of the things that I, did, that I learned during that time is I learned a lot about ladders. I learned, I learned about ladders, like what to do and, and what not to do and and uh, as I was thinking about that and, and uh, you know, some of the dumb things that I did uh, with ladders, and I, these aren't pictures of me doing dumb things, but, but it reminded me of dumb things that I do. And so I want to show you a couple pictures uh, of, of people doing some dumb things with ladders. Go ahead and put, put those up. Yeah, that, that one's pretty good. That may, oh, go, go back, go back. Don't, don't scroll through them. I don't know if it's, it did that on its own probably. But uh, yeah, that may or may not have happened in this building, in this room, changing light bulbs. May or may not have happened. Yeah, that's probably not super smart. Table on top of a table on top of two tables. I love that. That's good. Go to the next one. Yeah, that's, you know, that's smart, isn't it? Little ladder, board, bigger ladder. I like how he has him tied off, himself tied off to the, to the ladder he's standing on. Kind of over a, that's pretty good. I'm not sure how that would work if the ladder fell. I think he'd just fall. But anyways, go to the next one. Yeah. What, what do you mean, ooh? 
I thought that was smart. That looked pretty, anyways. Yeah, so he just needed like, you know, what is that, 18 more inches or something like that? So he put some buckets. Go to the next one. Yeah, this is my favorite. Ingenuity at its finest right there. Yeah, I'd have got some bigger friends, if you know what I mean. Yeah, go to the next one. This is what garbage cans were built for, right? I mean, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, they just have wheels on the bottom of them. Like that one does anyway. I think they both do, actually. Yeah, go to the next one. Okay, now look really carefully at this one. Okay, not only is he standing on the ladder sideways, which is connected to two other ladders, but look at the bottom of the left-hand ladder with the, it's sitting on top of that other ladder, isn't it? I'm pretty sure it is. I'm not sure. That looks smart. That looks smart. He had a lot of ladders. We'll just go with that. <laughs> go to the next one. Yes! This, remind, this reminded me of, of when I was doing construction and I was working on a house. We, um, we, were, we had framed up, it was, a, it was actually a pretty small house, and we were like tripling the size of this house. And, uh, and, and so we've added this big garage, this two-car garage, and, and I set up a ladder. I was on the job site alone. We had kind of framed, the, the garage was framed, but we hadn't uh, dried it in or anything. It, the, 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 the plywood was not on it. Yet, and so I had the ladder leaning up against the, against the garage, and I climbed up the ladder, and I don't remember why, what I was doing. Um, I was doing something, I'm sure. It was worthwhile for me to be up there, and, and so I climb up the ladder, and I get up the ladder, and I start doing whatever it is I'm doing, and, and you get, of course, you got to remember, like, you know, I got the tool belt on and the whole thing, and, and so there's, you know, extra weight and less mobility and things, and the ladder starts to slide down the wall, as I'm at the top of this ladder, and I, and I start thinking, I look down, and sure enough, I realize this ladder is going down, and I'm going down with it. And so I did, so I, so I did considering the situation I was in, what was really smart, and I just, I kind of stepped off the ladder onto the, because I was over the garage door, and so I just stepped onto the header, and held onto the, and I just watched the ladder go, bam, on the ground. The problem was that I was alone on the, on the job site, and now I'm up above the garage door, trying to figure out how am I going to get down. <laughs> so I, I, I was fine, but I looked, and, and fortunately it wasn't it, a couple minutes, and somebody, somebody drove up, uh, one of the other guys, and they, they set the ladder. I was able to climb down. Was it, but here's what was interesting about the whole situation, was the reason the ladder fell, because I'd set it up on, on a stack of OSB. OSB is like, like uh, Oriental strand board. It's like, it's like plywood, and on one side, it's super, super slick. This is what they put, you know, they frame in the place, and then they put it on, on like the roof and the sides and things like that. Sometimes they put it on the sides, but they put it on the roof, and it's, it's like this, this half-inch thick plywood, and there was a stack of it, and super, super slippery. And, and what I realized is that, is that the ladder was pushing out, and the, and the OSB, the top piece of OSB, just started to slide because it was so slick. And the, and the foundation that was under my ladder just went away. And as we were talking about last week, and we were talking about faith being the foundation uh, of, for, for one of the secrets of the Christian life, and in being sure that we have a firm foundation— as we kind of look, go forward and talk about these things over the next several weeks, we're talking about is characteristics that we add on to that foundation. And the whole point, it's like a ladder being on top of a solid foundation. In other words, don't put it on top of a stack of oriental strand board because it'll slide out from underneath you, okay? 
But make, a, make sure you have, your faith is your firm foundation. Now you put the ladder on that, and if you will, and I know it's an, it's an analogy, don't take it too far, okay? But you begin to kind of climb those, those ladder rungs. Each rung is one of those things we add on to our faith kind of towards heaven. And so it's kind of this picture as we go through this series and you think about what this is all about. The first and most important thing is having that firm foundation of faith, and then everything else is a ladder that's used in a safe way. I'm always amazed because when... When you have, you know, it seems like this is, I know this is stereotypical, but too bad, get over it. You know, you, you sell, a guy, a husband, or whatever, or maybe we're at, at some kind of gathering, maybe we're helping some friends with something, and, and somebody, and, and a guy sets up a ladder, and it's always interesting to watch the guys react to what's going on, and the women react to what's going on. Because the first thing the women think about is, how is this going to turn out badly? Like, what, 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 is, what is my... None of you women would ever say this. But what is my idiot husband going to do, <laughs> you know, that will endanger himself, but with this ladder, right? Like, and, and the guys are, the guys are, you know, sometimes they're thinking, like, how can I make this more dangerous, you know? <laughs> but when it comes to our faith, we want to have that, that faith that's a firm foundation and a ladder that's, that's on top of that foundation as we add to it the things that we're going to talk about this morning and, um, and I think this probably is a reason why women live longer than men. But, uh, but men have more fun. Let's just be honest. As we think about this and, and what it is, well, so what do we do? We're setting up our ladder on, on, a, on a solid foundation on faith. And what we have in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, as we go through the characteristics, is a ladder placed on a foundation. And these characteristics we add to our faith. So our foundation is our faith, and we talked about that last week. And as one commentator put it, true faith sweats. Truth faith, true faith sweats. In other words, faith is something that works. It's a hard worker. It's not something that you just kind of have and it sits there. But if you, if you have true faith in Jesus Christ, if you're going to follow him with your life, your faith is going to work, and it's going to work hard. True faith Sweats, And so as we add these characteristics to it, we'll kind of see that this takes effort and work. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says this, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, what, what Peter does is he, is he comes and he says, look, these things, those, that, that list in, in, that starts in, in verse 5, right? And he says, add, add to your faith goodness or virtue, as we're going to talk about this morning. And these other characteristics, as he, he adds those, and he says, if you do these things, then you'll confirm your calling and election. In other words, true faith sweats. It works really hard. And doing these things is a confirmation. In other words, I want to be clear here. You don't do these things so that you can be saved. You have faith, and your faith, as it works itself out, does these things. It's a really important distinction that we need to have. The first characteristic we, we add to the foundation of faith is virtue, or to put it another way, the first thing that we furnish our faith with is virtue. 
The word in, 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 in the Bible that is translated add or supply or supplement, depending on the, the version you're looking at, has this idea of furnishing. My wife and I have been working on our bathroom in the basement. We had some water damage this past year, so we had to kind of go in there and, uh, you know, kind of fix things. And, in the, of course, in the process, you, you upgrade a few things along the way, right? And it was interesting because as we, as we kind of tore everything apart, we realized the more work we were going to have to do. And, and so we ended up doing more than we even thought we were going to do. But we, we finally, yesterday... Got, you know, the sink is in and running, the toilet's in and running, the shower is in and running, and all these things. And so, but you walk in right now, and we had to, we had to do some drywall work and things, and so everything's, everything's taped and finished and textured. But you walk in, and it's really bare, because you have your vanity and your sink, and you got your toilet, and you got your shower, but there's no mirror, there's no towel racks, there, there's nowhere to put anything, you know what I mean? And so it's kind of the bare bones of things. And if you want to think about it this way, now what we have to do is we have to furnish it, right? Like we need, we need to put a mirror up. We need to put in a, a, a toilet paper holder roll. What do you call those things? Thinger. Uh, that's, that's the language of my wife. I was adopting the thinger, the thingy. And, um, and so you got to put those things in, right? And so you put all of these different things in to make it more functional, somewhere to put your soap and, and which I got a really new cool soap thing. I know. I'm, she's supposed to be excited about that, but I am. She's not. She doesn't care. But I, I do. I, I got this little soap thing. So we, get, we kind of furnish it, right? And so in the same way, it's like we have our faith, and now we're furnishing it, furnishing our faith with these, these other things. The first thing we're furnishing our faith with, of course, is virtue. But the first thing we need to realize or recognize about our virtue is this. The source of virtue is the character of God. The source of virtue is the character of God. Now, I I told you we were going to use the English Standard Version this morning. And there's a reason for that. If you read in the NIV, it it uses the word goodness instead of virtue. But as I was thinking about this and looking at this, good's kind of a a common word, right? You go to a movie and you're telling, telling your friend about the movie. You say, that movie was really good, right? Now, if we ask the question, well, was the movie virtuous? That would be a different kind of question, wouldn't it? All of a sudden, that word takes on a whole new meaning. But we, go, we, we went to a restaurant with some friends on Friday night, and we, uh, another pastor, friend of mine, and his wife, and, and myself, and my wife, Chris, we went to a, a little restaurant up in Old Arvada. Not a little restaurant, it was a nice size. But we went there, and we ate the food, and it was really good, right? And we sit down, and we, we go, and if we tell somebody else about the restaurant we went to, and we liked it, we say the food was really what? Good right? Now, if you ask us what we ate, you might say, I don't know if that was good, right? You know, like you maybe shouldn't have eaten that. It would be another thing to say, was the food virtuous in the sense that it was good for me? Well, that's a different question, isn't it? If we say the same thing when it comes to music, wow, that's a, that's a really good song. It's got a nice, it's got a nice hook to it and it makes you want to sing it. And then, well, is the song virtuous? Oh, well, that's a different question, isn't it? Good is a, is a word that we use in a lot of contexts. In the same way, in this text, Peter uses a word that the NIV translates good, with a, and, and, and this, word for, this word isn't a common word. As a matter of fact, it's only used like five times in the New Testament. Paul uses it once in Philippians chapter 4, 
And then here, Peter uses it like four times, or Peter uses it four times between first and second Peter, and three of them are in this passage. And so there's only five times this word, but we see the word good all over the place. There's other words for good in the original language that are used, but this isn't a common word. This has a specific meaning. And in the same way we don't use virtue, that word very much, we probably wouldn't use that Greek word very much if we were in the, in the first century and writing in Rome. And so there's a point to this word that has something, it says something more than just good, has this idea of, of virtue. And if you look up virtue in, in English, virtue means moral excellence or righteousness. And that's exactly what this word in the Greek is trying to communicate. It's talking about, about moral excellence or righteousness. And so I wanted to use the English Standard Version because it translates it with, with this word virtue. It translates it in some other ways as we'll see in a second as well. But we need to realize this, that the source of this moral excellence, this virtue, is not something within me and it's not something within you. That's not the source. This is a really important reason and we, we listen to the culture around us and, and there's all kinds of virtue signaling, right, about, hey, you gotta believe in this or you gotta believe in that and everybody's trying to communicate and come at you with their message about what is virtuous and what is not virtuous and, and in our more broad, general, secular society, the source for that virtue is generally speaking either a person or a group of people. It's their particular feelings about the issue. It's their opinion. In other words, they are themselves the source for that virtue. And I, can I just tell you, that's a bankrupt way to look at the world. It's a, it's a bankrupt way to look at the world. Because I am not the source of all that which is virtuous. And if you know me really well, you'd go, well, no duh, John. But neither are you. You are not virtuous enough, and I am not virtuous. I am not, I am not morally excellent enough in my own heart that my heart or my opinion or my feeling can be the source of what is virtuous. The only source that is capable of that is something that transcends humanity, right? It, it has to go beyond us. It can't be us. It's got to go beyond us. And so that source has to come from the very character of God. Because if we just base it on what I feel like, I might feel differently tomorrow or next week or next month. Or you might feel different than I feel. Matter of fact, that, we use that language a lot. And, he, and here's one of, the, one of the ways we use that language. We'll be having a conversation maybe with a friend or, or somebody. Maybe we have a disagreement about something and, and we want to disagree with them. But of course, we want to be polite. And so here's what we say. We go, well, I feel like this is the way it actually is, right? We, we kind of use that feel word. I feel like, that's, can I just be honest? I you feel, what does that even mean? Like you got, you got the tinglys and so I don't know what that means. I feel like. I, think, I, don't, I actually think that language harms us because we tend to start making decisions based on our own emotional state. And can I just tell you something? Your emotions will lie to you. Your emotions will lie. You want, want to know something else? Your logic and reasoning will lie to you. There is, our minds are, are, are fallen just like our hearts are. We, are. we are not capable as human beings because we are fallen, because we are, we are not perfect. We are far from perfect, right? We don't, we don't see the world the way God sees the world. Even on our best days when we seem to be seeing things clearly, we can only see a portion of things. 
maybe accurately in the way they are, but we cannot see all things accurately in the way they are. That's on our best day. It's maybe a portion. But God sees all things. And it's his character, God's character, that is the source of our virtue. And Peter makes a point of this in in, in verse 3, 2 Peter 1, verse 3, when he says this, His divine power, that's God, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We talked about this a little bit last week, right? So, so we're empowered by God through the knowledge of Him who called us, who's that God, to His own glory and excellence. Now the word there for excellence, that's that word that is in, in, in verse uh, 5, it's translated virtue. Moral excellence is what's being talked about there. So Peter uses that word there, translated excellence. So he called us to his own glory and excellence. And so Peter starts out this passage, this letter to to the Christians in Asia Minor and says, and says it's God's moral excellence that is the source of all these things. And then in in a couple verses in verse five, he says, he says, here you have faith. And then you got to add to your faith virtue. And he uses that same, same Greek word. In other words, what he's saying is the virtue, the moral excellence that you think is in you is not. It's found, its source is found in God. And the character of God is revealed in Scripture. A, a Christian and biblical view of ethics and morality starts with the character of who God is. That is, that is to say, we don't decide what is virtuous by looking into our own heart or our own mind and trying to figure out how I feel about something because my feelings... They're not irrelevant, but they're irrelevant to whether something is good or not, whether it's virtuous or not. That doesn't mean my feelings don't matter, but it doesn't matter in in determining whether something is virtuous or good. We look to the character of God, which is revealed in Scripture. So much of ethics and the ethics and virtues of our society is based on how people feel. It's It's a sort of emotivism, if you will. But Christians inform their moral decisions and beliefs by the character of God revealed in Scripture. God is a standard that transcends, it goes beyond, that is to say, both the individual and society in general. Without God as our standard, we are just making stuff up. That's really what it comes down to. We can get a group of people, we can even get a group of people to agree on something. But can, if we were to go back and to look at just history, and it doesn't, we don't have to go back in history, really. We could, e- we could even look at today, but it's easier sometimes to look back into history, and we begin, we can find large groups of people that, gre- that agreed on, on what they believe to be morally righteous. And all I have to do is say one word, and you'll understand exactly what I mean. Hitler. You know exactly what I mean, don't you? We can find large group of people that believes something to be right and good and moral, and they can be completely wrong. We need something that transcends our hearts and our minds and the things that we come up with, because if it comes from us, we're just making stuff up. Not only is God, however, the source of virtue, we are to proclaim God's virtue. We are to proclaim God's virtue. Our, our virtue is not worth complaining, or proclaiming. To go to the world and say, and say, here's what I think is right. And, you know, if you come to me and say, John, this is what's right. I, I, my first question is, why should I care what you think? I mean, it's, I'm not being rude to you. I just, that's a real question, right? Like, why, why do I care what you think? Notice when I get up here and stand here and I say stuff to you guys, I don't say, well, well here's what, what I think. I'm always appealing to what? 
Scripture. The revealed Word of God. That's what I'm appealing to because, quite honestly, what I think doesn't matter if it's not grounded in what God thinks. That's what makes it matter. So when you come to somebody and you say, and you say, hey, here's what I think, you need to understand that what you think probably doesn't matter a lot to them. And maybe you've earned some respect in their life. Maybe it matters because of that. Maybe they've, you have a good relationship and, and they've seen you live in a wise way or God-honoring way. And so they, they give you some, some credence, if you will. And so then that gives you the ability to say certain things. And that's all fine. But there comes a point where, where it's got to be grounded not just in you, but something that is beyond you. And I say this because I myself think that, I, I look in the mirror and I go, people probably shouldn't care that much about what I think. They should care about what the Word of God says and about what God thinks. And they should ground it there. And my life, I hope, is, exists to proclaim not my virtues, but the virtues of God. This last week, last Sunday, that is, uh, the Minnesota Vikings went to, you know, they're my team. I know they lost. It's all right. They went to, they went to New Orleans, right? They beat the Saints. And, and I listened, you know, to, to Minnesota sports radio like all week, uh, you know, on, on, on my phone and whatever and was listening and listened to all the chatter. And, of course, everybody's remembering if from Minnesota. And you probably, guys probably don't even care about this, but in 1987, it was the same path. They played the Saints, and they upset the Saints. They, they were the low seed in the first game. They upset the Saints. In the second game, they were going to play the 49ers, much like they did yesterday, but in 1987, they won. They beat the Saints, and then they beat the 49ers. They, they got Joe Montana taken out of the game, and Steve Young put in the game in, in, in that game because they, they were just dominating and that whole thing. And So everybody in Minnesota was talking about, oh, wow, they're going to go to New Orleans. They're going to beat them, and then they're going to go to the 49ers. They're going to beat them, and they're going to make it to the, to the NFC Championship game, just like they did in 1987, of course, we all know that didn't work out. But they did go to New Orleans, and they won that game, right? And Kirk Cousins, the quarterback of the Minnesota Vikings, was being interviewed after the game last Sunday, and, and they, were, they were talking to him about how he handles the pressure of the game, and how he handled that specifically because he was known for not winning big games, and he just won a really big game. And so, so the, the reporter was asking him, you know, hey, how did you, how did you handle that? And here's, I, I just want to read to you what he, what he wrote, or what he said, because I think this is, this is really important to what we're talking about today. He said this, he said, win or lose, God is still on the throne. That's what he said. Kirk Cousins is a believer, he's a Christian, he's, um, I know some guys who've had interactions, some pastors who have had interactions with him, and, and he, he's very serious about his faith. And he said, win or lose, God is still on the throne. And how smart was that of him to recognize, I just play football. This is a game. There's no real pressure here. There's nothing that, nothing that I do today. It was great to win a big game, but if I would have lost the game and people would have said, oh, Kirk Cousins, he can't win the big game. He can't do this. He can't do that. Whatever. He goes, God's still on the throne. It, it, it doesn't matter, but it's not just about football. That translates to your life and my life too. We, sometimes we, we're kind of self-important. We think our, our life is, is so important that we've got to accomplish this or, or have success this way or do this or do that. And, and, and what we need to recognize is that no matter what happens in your life and my life, God is still on the throne. The most important thing about my life is not what it says about me, but what it says about God. In other words, am I in my life proclaiming God's virtues? 
Is that how I'm living? Kirk Cousins understood that. He, he understands and knows the most important thing about his life is not that he's an NFL quarterback, but that he is a follower of Jesus Christ, that he's a child of God, and he desperately wants his life to proclaim the virtues of God first and foremost. That's how we should live in every moment of our life. Proclaiming the virtues of God by how we live. But you go, I, I, don't, I don't get all that. Well, First Peter, so Peter wrote two letters, right? There's Second Peter, which we were looking at, but there's also First Peter. And if we go back to chapter two of First Peter, uh, a fairly well-known verse, he says this, but you are, cho- you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of, for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies, that's that same word, by the way, the excellencies, the moral virtues, if you will, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, Peter comes and he he writes to the people in Asia Minor. Both letters are written to the same group of people and and they were surrounded by false teachers who taught uh, wrong doctrines, but not only taught taught wrong doctrines, but taught things that were wrong morally. And he he addresses them and he he says, look, he says, you are called by God to proclaim the virtues, the moral excellencies of God. That's your calling. And we read this, and we, at first we might go, well, that's a lot about me, right? I'm a chosen race. I'm a royal priesthood. I'm a holy nation. No, 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 no. You are those things because of, because of God. This is actually about him. Because of your relationship to him. It is, an, it is an appeal not to your own moral excellencies, right? It says, proclaim the moral excellencies of you? No. Of who? Of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's our life. We live day by day, moment by moment, to proclaim those things. And you go, well, how do I do that? Great question. Well, Peter answers it. If you jump down the same chapter, a few verses all the way down to, ch- to verse 11, he says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the, the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, live a virtuous morally, virtuously moral life, abstain from certain things, and embrace certain things. He says abstain from the passions of this world. And you might go, well, what are the passions of this world? Well, Paul gives us an answer, an answer to that, and there's many places I could have gone, but, but I went to Galatians chapter 5. And, and it says this, now the works of the flesh are evident. So Peter says, uh, avoid the, pa- the, the passions of flesh. And Paul says, here are the, 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 passion, the, the works of the flesh. And he, then he gives a list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, uh, dissensions divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Just in case you didn't get caught up in this list. You got all the things like that too. So you don't get out of this scot-free, okay? Like you're caught up in this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here is the point. Here's what Peter is saying. Don't do those things. Abstain from those things because they do what? Because they're unpleasant? No. Many of them probably are pleasant because they wage war against your soul. This is really important. Your body, by the way, is not you. Your body is not you. I don't know if you realize this, but, but if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you follow him, you, 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 this body will die someday. 
The reason we follow Jesus is because of the hope that he gives us in eternity, at least that's one reason, one of the big reasons, right? And he rose again, and so our bodies will, will, will rise again to, and to get a glorified body, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, we get a new, God, new, new, new body. God gives us a brand new body. Praise Jesus, amen? Because this one gets broken down sometimes. In other words, my body is not me, but my soul is me. It's eternal. I don't get a new soul. And so Peter says, abstain from these things because it wages war against your soul, against your very identity, against the very essence of who you are. These things go against how God has designed us. Sometimes they're attractive and sometimes we want to engage in them and we want to partake in them and we think it's good and we enjoy it maybe even for a time, but they wage war against our soul and they are harmful to our soul and our soul's eternal. So protect your soul by abstaining from those things. Instead, we have to live the virtuous life, the God-honoring life. Peter tells us to avoid those things, right? But we're to keep our conduct honorable and do what is right and what is good. And it's an essential part of proclaiming by how we live. Now, I want to pause here just for a second because I want us to understand something. Sometimes what what Christians like to do is they like to go, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to, I'm just going to live the Christian life. I'm not actually going to say anything about my faith. In other words, we like to separate our words as if that's not also part of how we live. But we like to separate our words from our actions. We go, well, I'm just going to live good and hope that people will kind of notice and, and things like that. And that they'll want that too. Can I tell you something? People are falling, including you, by the way, apart from the grace of God, right? Then you'd be in a whole world of trouble. People aren't always looking for people who are living virtuous life. They want to embrace the, the, a, a licentious life. They want, to, they, they want those things. They look at you and they just think, well, you're no fun. That's what, that's, that's a, might, might be as far as you get. And you can live a God-honoring life, but I, I was almost gonna say without saying anything, but that's not really true. Part of what we say is living our God-honoring life. In other words, at some point, you can, you can, you can live however you wanna live, but at some point, you actually have to use words to proclaim the goodness of God to proclaim the character of God, to proclaim the moral excellencies of God, you actually at some point have to use words and that's part of how you live too. You don't get to separate those things. All of it is, is part of living the moral virtu- morally virtuous life. It's not only how we live and the decisions we make, but it's what we say and, how, and, and those things as well. Proclaiming God's character as a source of virtue. All this leads to this one thing. When you furnish faith with virtue, you live a life worthy of praise. When you furnish faith with virtue, you live a life worthy of praise. What Peter is saying is this. The foundation is faith. Add to that virtue, moral excellence, that that virtue, that characteristic is found in the very character of who God is. Right, so live that way, and when you do that, you'll live a, a life worthy of praise, and in, especially in the first century, in the classical sense of the virtuous life, what you, what you find is this idea that the virtuous life is worthy of praise, but that leads us to two questions and two things that we need to distinguish the virtuous life for a Christian versus the virtuous life for those who are outside of 
Christianity. And the first is this, the criteria for what is worthy of praise is different. In other words, those outside of the Christian faith might look at somebody and say, wow, they're living a virtuous life. And those who look at Scripture and find the character of virtue in God and his revealed character in Scripture might look at the same life and go, nope, that's not a virtuous life. In other words, we're coming from two different perspectives. The standards, the criteria uh, are different. And sometimes the world, those outside of the Christian faith, might look at us and how we live and go, that's not virtuous, but Scripture tells us that is virtuous. And so we follow what Scripture says because it reveals God's character. You see the difference? Leads us to the second thing, and that is this. Who gives the praise? It's one thing for the criteria to be different, but then we have to ask this. Who gives the praise? Are we seeking the praise of others? Other people? Remember, that's not the source of, of virtue. Where's the source of virtue? It's in, found in the character of God. And so when we seek praise, we ought to seek the praise of God for a virtuous life, not the praise of the person sitting next to you even in this room. Right? We want to we go to God and someday stand before him. We want to hear what God said to the, to, to the servant who was faithful. We want to hear God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the praise we seek. Now here's the thing. You start talking about obedience and, and, and living a morally virtuous life and, and people get kind of weird about it, right? They start thinking, well, Johnny, what are you saying? Are you saying I have to do all these things in order to, to receive salvation, in order to have my sins forgiven? Nope, not saying that at all. Remember, if you go back to what I said earlier, true faith sweats. In other words, it is the faith, faith that produces these things. It is these things that you furnish your faith with, right? The faith saves you. But this is, the morally virtuous life is what we furnish our faith with. It confirms our election and calling. It doesn't earn us our election and calling. Do you guys understand the difference between that? As we live this life, let's proclaim the virtues of God. Let's proclaim the virtues of God because it is His virtues that matter. His moral excellency that matters. Let us seek His praise, not the praise of the world, or anyone else. When you furnish faith with virtue, you live a life worthy of praise. Amen? Let's pray. Dear God, you are good and gracious and worthy of worship and praise.